Hello and welcome to this installment of AZ Law. I'm your volunteer reader and Phoenix attorney Paul Wyke. We explore Arizona's legal and judicial systems in this program. AZ Law came about to provide Arizona legal news for Sun Sounds of Arizona, the nonprofit reading service for people with disabilities which make it difficult for them to read or hold printed materials. It's broadcast on Sunday at 10.30 a.m. and p.m. and other installments available on demand. Our Arizona'sLaw.org website is independent of Sun Sounds, but its prime focus is to support Sun Sounds, which, by the way, is a service of Rio Salado Community College, along with KJZZ and KBAQ radio stations. Our website has links to those stations and information on how you can become a member of them, and we urge you to do so now at arizonaslaw.org. Easy Law is now available for download at our website as well as on iTunes podcasts, Google Play Music and Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go ahead and get to the news. We have a slew of interesting legal articles to choose from this week. For example, we'll start with two reports about the legal cases surrounding Arizona's election audit. An article and a commentary about the big U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Arizona's election laws from a couple weeks ago. Protesters from BLM protests in Phoenix last year were charged as gang members. They're suing the county now and Phoenix police. And there are many more articles, so let's get right to it. The first one is from uh, our reporting on AZ Law. Court completely rejects state senate's reason for not turning over audit-related records held by cyber ninjas. Here's what we reported. A judge today completely rejected state senate president Karen Fan's reason for not turning over records related to her election audit. It does not matter whether the records are in the hands of the cyber ninjas or subcontractors, Judge Michael Kemp ruled. The court finds that any and all documents with a substantial nexus to the audit activities are public records. This does not mean that all internal files of all government vendors constitute public records of the officer or the public body with whom they contracted their services. The court further finds that Cyber Ninjas and the sub-vendors are agents for the Senate defendants who have at least constructive possession of the documents in question. In court filings in a related case, defendant Karen Fan admitted that Cyber Ninjas and Ken Bennett were the Senate's authorized agents. That was a quote from his opinion. Judge Kemp concluded his six-and-a-half-page ruling with this clear message. It is difficult to conceive of a case with a more compelling public interest demanding public disclosure and public scrutiny. The motion to dismiss is denied. In a separate ruling this morning, Kemp also rejected efforts by Fan and the Cyber Ninjas to yank a related case from the Arizona Republic from Judge John Hanna. The effort to transfer or consolidate the two cases was just one of the legal tactics that the state Senate has used to try to get rid of Judge Hanna, and we'll have another. We'll have a little bit more about that. Judge Kemp did not give a deadline for the defendants to turn over those records that are not in the physical control of the state Senate. There are two dates in related proceedings, however. First, the order to show cause return hearing that was supposed to take place in the Arizona Republic's case was pushed back to July 21st. And the U.S. House Oversight Committee got into the act yesterday with an extensive request to Cyber Ninjas for documents and communications, and they gave a deadline of July 28th. 
And that was reported July 15th on AZ Law, which is Arizona's law.org. Court completely rejects state Senate's reason for not turning over audit-related records held by the cyber ninjas. And in a related article, previous day, July 14th, we reported stranger and stranger cyber ninjas tries to disqualify judge by calling him biased and his previous ruling plainly bizarre. The cyber ninjas are trying to turn the tables and disqualify the judge in one of the public records lawsuits against them and the Arizona State Senate. The ninjas accused Superior Court Judge John Hanna of showing actual bias and prejudice against the Arizona Republican Party and quote-unquote conservative causes. Hannah is the assigned judge in the Arizona Republic's attempt to obtain the results of the state Senate's recount slash audit. He's also the judge who sanctioned the Arizona GOP for one of the, in, in one of the post-election lawsuits challenging the November election. Not coincidentally, the law firm that was sanctioned along with the Arizona Republican Party in the November case is the same one that is now representing cyber ninjas. Never mind that the Arizona Republican Party is not officially a party to the ongoing audit, Jack Willinchick, the attorney, broadened his accusation to allege bias against all conservative causes. Further, he continues his now multi-case campaign against Judge Hanna by accusing him of making a plainly bizarre ruling in the previous case and claiming he is believed to be a Democrat. More on that scorching March 15th ruling was reported on earlier. It should be noted that the cyber ninjas also claim that they should be able to have the case reassigned as a matter of right and that the Supreme Court's COVID-19 related order halting such changes is ineffective. That was denied by Judge Kemp the following day. And that was stranger and stranger cyber ninjas trying to disqualify the judge. Well, let's turn to that U.S. Supreme Court case that uh, the whole nation was watching a couple of weeks ago involving Arizona's election laws. This article is from Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services on July 1. Early voter law changed before the Supreme Court ruling. It adds a little wrinkle to the coverage of that opinion. Here's the article. A new ruling upholding Arizona election laws comes as state lawmakers just changed one of the reasons the U.S. Supreme Court agreed to leave the statutes in place. In concluding the ban on ballot harvesting does not violate the Voting Rights Act, the court cited how easy it is for Arizonans to cast early ballots. Justice Samuel Alito pointed out that, among other things, any voter may ask to be sent an early ballot automatically in future elections. That was true at the time the case was argued before the court in March, but that was before the Republican-controlled legislature adopted SB 1485. That law says that if someone does not return an early ballot in at least one of four prior elections, the person is dropped from what until now had been called the permanent early voting list. They still could sign up again to get early ballots. They also would have to be notified before being removed from the list. And they could still go to the polls on election day, but all of those options entail additional hurdles. More to the point, Foes argued this would have a disparate negative impact on minority voters who may be less inclined to vote in every election, but still want the option of getting that ballot for the years that they are interested in casting an early ballot. That proved particularly true in 2020, with not just record turnout, but also nearly 90% of the votes cast by early ballot. 
All that raises two questions. The first is whether the Supreme Court might have reached a different conclusion on the legality of the 2016 law against ballot harvesting had the justices known of the subsequent change by Arizona lawmakers. That, for the moment, remains an academic question. Second is whether this new law fits within the guidelines laid out in the Supreme Court's July 1 ruling about what changes states can and cannot enact without running afoul of the Federal Voting Rights Act. During debate on SB 1485, proponents argued that having unvoted early ballots leads to the possibility that someone else could get hold of them and cast a fraudulent vote. Senator Vince Leach, a Republican from Tucson, said that in Pima County alone there were about 70,000 early ballots mailed out last election that were not returned. But Senator Kirsten Angle, a Democrat also from Tucson, said there is no documented evidence of fraud due to early voting. That may be irrelevant. In their July 1 ruling, the justices said a state need not have evidence of fraud before enacting restrictions designed to protect election integrity. There is, however, still the question of whether the law will have a disparate impact on people of color. That was the argument of Senator Martin Quesada, a Democrat from Glendale. He said that leads him to believe the measure was enacted due to systemic racism. Attorney General Mark Burnovich, who defended the ballot harvesting law at the Supreme Court, said he believes SB 1485 is defensible. In and of itself, cleaning up early voting lists is not something that is going to trigger the Voting Rights Act per se, he told Capital Media Services. And that was Early Voter Law Changed Before SCOTUS Ruling, reported by Howard Fisher of Capital Media Services. And on that case, uh, here is a commentary from the Arizona Republic. It was written by Robert Robb. It's headlined, Arizona prevailed in ballot harvesting case, but Brnovich and Scalia were the big winners. Here's his commentary. Attorney General Mark Brnovich was a big winner in the U.S. Supreme Court decision upholding Arizona laws banning ballot harvesting and not counting ballots cast in the wrong precinct. Brnovich defended Arizona's election laws clear up to the high court when Secretary of State Katie Hobbs was taking a powder. In fact, rather than defend the election statutes she was elected to implement, she actually hired outside counsel to urge the high court not to accept an appeal from the Ninth Circuit, which had struck down both provisions. The recent legislation stripping Hobbs of any role in legal challenges to the state's election laws has been widely depicted as just partisan and vindictive, but the legislature has an interest in, and a right to, a vigorous defense of the laws it enacts. Hobbs made it clear in this and other cases she would not provide it. Brnovich did and prevailed. But the biggest winner in the case, Brnovich v. DNC, was late Justice Antonin Scalia. Although the court was divided 6-3, to three, the entire argument among the justices was grounded in the principles of textualism and originalism that he had championed. The heart of the disagreement was what Congress meant when it said that the totality of circumstances should be considered in determining whether there was a violation of the Voting Rights Act. Writing for the majority, Justice Samuel Alito opined that it meant looking at the election system as a whole. Arizona's election system is one of the most expansive in the country regarding opportunities to vote. There is universal availability of voting by mail, vote centers for in-person early voting, and election day voting at polling places. 
Given that context, according to Alito, exiguous differences in invalidated out-of-precinct ballots and speculative differences regarding ballot harvesting were insufficient to conclude that minorities were being denied an equal opportunity to participate in Arizona's elections. According to Justice Elena Kagan, who wrote the dissent, Congress was instead instructing courts to consider the totality of circumstances relating to the voting rule being challenged. Even if a vote, even if a rule was facially neutral regarding race, it could have a discriminatory effect in practice, given the local conditions in which it is applied. I think Kagan has the better reading regarding congressional intent, but she stumbled badly in applying her superior construction to the specific provisions of Arizona's law under challenge. Election Day in-precinct voting in Arizona is losing ground to mail ballots and voting centers. But among minorities who vote in-precinct on Election Day, 99% vote in the right precinct. Among whites, it's 99.5%. And even that half a percentage point difference assumes that the race of every in-precinct Election Day voter has been accurately categorized, a highly improbable assumption. A reasonable argument can be made that states should count out-of-precinct ballots for statewide races for which the voter was eligible, but there is an administrative cost and complication involved. Pace Kagan, there is no basis in the Voting Rights Act for judges to toss out a long-standing practice in Arizona and many other states. Kagan believes that states should be required to secure their interest in things such as ballot security in the least restrictive way possible. There's nothing in the Voting Rights Act that requires that, and it stirs a judicial hornet's nest, as her opinion illustrates. Kagan opined that the ballot harvesting ban, limiting who can collect and deliver mail ballots, had a discriminatory effect on Native American reservations due to the poor mail service on them. Her proposed less restrictive solution was to create an exception for Native clan or kinship ties. In other words, to adopt a law that discriminates based on race in order to comply with a law intended to prohibit discrimination based on race. Given all the hyperbolic hubbub in Arizona about the ballot harvesting ban, it is worth noting that the Biden administration told the court that it did not believe that the ban or the out-of-precinct voting provision violated the Voting Rights Act. And the dissenters found that the ballot harvesting ban violated the VRA only as applied on the reservation and not generally. Keeping actual ballots out of the hands of political activists is just a common-sense election integrity measure. Upholding these two provisions of Arizona's election law was the right outcome, but critics have a point that the conservative court majority has made the Voting Rights Act a less potent force than Congress had intended. And that was a commentary from Robert Robb. Arizona prevailed in ballot harvesting case, but Brnovich and Scalia were the big winners. Well, let's move away from election law-related cases and go to this one from Melissa Blasius at ABC 15 in Phoenix. The headline is, Protesters charged as gang members file lawsuit against Maricopa County attorney Alistair Adele. This was from July 13th. A group of protesters in Arizona who were arrested during multiple demonstrations in Phoenix have filed a lawsuit against Maricopa County attorney Alistair Adele and the city of Phoenix, alleging that they were wrongfully arrested and fraudulently indicted. 
the plaintiffs in Keisha Acton versus Alistair Adele, collectively alleged that they were wrongfully arrested at four different demonstrations in 2020 and later fraudulently charged with various crimes. Charges in all 39 of those cases have since been dropped. I myself was arrested on October 3rd and, you know, called a gang member for being in the streets and standing up for my rights, Acton said. I was facing eight years in prison simply for the lies Phoenix police fabricated. William Reed, another plaintiff arrested during protests, said, I am pretty sure we all feel violated by a place that we call home. The 120-page lawsuit includes claims of conspiracy to deprive civil rights, false arrests and malicious prosecution, First Amendment retaliation, defamation, and excessive force. The most shocking allegation, the one where you say that it is outrageous, is the conspiracy between Maricopa County and the city of Phoenix to knowingly make up a street gang, said Mart Harris, an attorney for the protesters. Another attorney, Billy Murphy Jr., said, The day we are not shocked by this level of outrageous police conduct will mean that it is okay. Murphy is a well-known civil rights advocate from Baltimore who is also assisting the plaintiffs. Ultimately, the plaintiffs say they want accountability and systematic change at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office and the Phoenix Police Department. As part of the politically charged investigation series on ABC 15, we have spent months investigating protest cases brought by Phoenix police and county prosecutors. The series exposed how police and prosecutors work together to grossly exaggerate evidence and present clearly false testimony to grand juries to indict protesters. ABC 15 also uncovered that the members of the Phoenix Police protest response team owned, shared, and sold challenge coins to celebrate violence against protesters. The coin's language is even tied to hate speech. A notice of claim was filed by the protesters in March, warning the MCAO. The settlement amount listed in that claim to avoid a lawsuit was $119 million. As a result of ABC 15's reports, the Phoenix Police Department and the Maricopa County Attorney's Office have each ordered separate outside investigations. There is no estimate for completion for any of the probes. Sergeant Doug McBride, a key sergeant involved in the protest cases, is now on the Brady list, and initial prosecutor April Sponzel is now on leave. A spokeswoman for Adele told ABC 15 they have not yet been served with a lawsuit and they can't comment on pending litigation. The Phoenix Police Department declined to comment for the same reason. And that was a report from ABC 15 Phoenix and Melissa Blasius. The headline, Protesters Charged as Gang Members File Lawsuit Against Maricopa County Attorney Alistair Adele and also against the Phoenix Police Department. Next, we turn to this article from the Associated Press dated July 14th, Ex-Politician's Accomplice Gets Two Years in Adoption Scheme. A woman who acknowledged helping a former Maricopa County assessor, Paul Peterson, in an illegal adoption scheme involving women from the Marshall Islands was sentenced to two years in prison on Tuesday. Linwood Jeanette, 47 years old, took part in submitting false applications for the birth mothers to receive state-funded health coverage, even though none of the women resided in the state. She had pleaded guilty to conspiracy and theft charges for her role at Peterson's direction. He was a Republican who served as Maricopa County Assessor for six years. 
Peterson worked as an adoption attorney before resigning his elected post and pleading guilty in three states to crimes related to the scheme. The health care fraud committed by Peterson and Jeanette totaled $814,000, authorities said. Peterson is currently in prison, serving a total of 11 years for a conviction in Arkansas for conspiring to commit human smuggling and the health care fraud conviction in Arizona. Additionally, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison in Utah for a human smuggling conviction. That Utah sentence, which leaves it up to the state's parole board to decide how long a person actually serves, is to be served concurrently, meaning Peterson could be done with his Utah sentence by the time he completes the other sentences or have up to four more years. Authorities say Peterson illegally paid women from the Marshall Islands to come to the United States to give up their babies in at least 70 adoption cases over three years. Citizens of the Marshall Islands have been prohibited from traveling to the U.S. for adoption purposes since 2003. Jeanette was accused of serving as a point of contact for people in the Marshall Islands who looked for pregnant women interested in coming to the U.S. to give up their children for adoption. Investigators have said Jeanette relayed information about birth mothers to Peterson, who then bought the women passports and plane tickets to Phoenix. Jeanette's attorney said that she was a a native of the Marshall Islands and that she had cooperated with investigators. That was ex-politician's accomplice gets two years in adoption scheme that was reported by the Associated Press. Our next article is from Brooke Newman of Cronkite News. It's from July 14th. The headline is Arizona executions put on hold over snafu with death penalty drugs. The state's plan to execute two death row inmates as early as this fall were derailed on Monday when the Arizona Supreme Court ordered the state to first determine the viability of its execution drugs before pressing ahead. The order came after the state acknowledged that the pentobarbital that it planned to use in the executions would only be good for 45 days, not the 90 originally claimed. And after Attorney General Mark Burnovich had asked the court to cut the briefing schedule in half in order to account for that error. Critics said that move showed Burnovich's extraordinary arrogance in trying to speed up the executions of Frank Atwood and Clarence Dixon, who were sentenced for separate decades-old murders. Robert Dunham, executive director of the Death Penalty Information Center, said Brnovich's effort to press ahead with the executions has nothing to do with carrying out the law or with fairness. He said it is just a way of trying to expedite executions at any cost. But a spokesperson for Brnovich said both Atwood and Dixon have exhausted their appeals and the families of their victims deserve justice. Brnovich will continue to fight for victims and their families, said Katie Connor, the spokesperson. Justice delayed is justice denied. Defense attorneys said the most recent problems with the state's execution protocols are just the latest example of Arizona's troubled history when it comes to carrying out fair and legal executions. The state's precipitous request for a briefing schedule before it had secured accurate information about the shelf life of its compounded pentobarbital is just the latest in Arizona's problematic handling of execution drugs, said Dale Bache, a federal public defender representing Dixon. Arizona has had a history of acting improperly and without regard to fairness or the law when it comes to executions, said Dunham. 
The state has not carried out an execution since 2014, when the lethal injection that was supposed to kill convicted murderer Joseph Wood instead left him snorting and gasping on the execution gurney for almost two hours. After that, the state attempted to import lethal injection drugs that were confiscated at Sky Harbor Airport by customs officials. Its troubles with lethal injection led the state to invest in the rehabilitation of the gas chamber last used in 1999. That caused an uproar when critics said the state planned to use a chemical related to the gas that was used during the Holocaust. The latest execution efforts began in April when Brnovich said he would push for the executions of Atwood and Dixon. Records obtained that month by The Guardian show that the state bought $1.5 million in lethal injection drugs. Atwood has been on death row since 1987 for the 1984 kidnapping and murder of an eight-year-old Tucson girl. Dixon was serving a life sentence for an unrelated sexual assault when a DNA match linked him to the 1978 rape and murder of an ASU student in Tempe, for which he received the death penalty. Brnovich asked the Arizona Supreme Court to set a hearing schedule for the executions based on a statement from an Arizona Department of Corrections pharmacist, who said the state would have 90 days to use the pentobarbital once it was compounded for lethal injection. The court granted that motion in May, clearing the way for the executions to be carried out as early as September. But in June, Brnovich filed another motion, citing a statement from the same pharmacist who said the drugs would only be good for 45 days after compounding, and he asked the court to cut the schedule in half. The corrections department did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The court on Monday rejected Brnovich's latest motion and reversed its May order setting a schedule. The court said the state could renew its scheduling request after specialized testing to determine a beyond-use date for compounded doses of the drug. The Arizona Supreme Court correctly recognized that the state is unprepared to carry out an execution in a safe and legal manner, said Beach. The shift did not come as a surprise to Atwood's attorney, Joseph Perkovich, who said the evidence showed all along that the drugs planned for the execution have the 45-day shelf life once compounded. Perkovich said the latest order derails the attorney general's reckless campaign to resume executions and affords Arizona the time to conduct the steps to establish the adequacy of its compounded pentobarbital for its intended purpose. Dunham called it just another instance of the state's incompetence in death penalty cases. Here, the incompetence in not knowing the shelf life of the execution drug is compounded with the arrogance of trying to use the prosecution's own error as a way of further limiting the defense opportunity to respond and further limiting the court's opportunity to learn the facts, Dunham said. In the rush to carry out executions, Arizona did not do its due diligence, he continued. Before you spend $1.5 million of taxpayers' money, you should know whether or not you are going to be able to use the drugs. And that article was headlined, Arizona Executions Put on Hold Over Snafu with Death Penalty Drugs. It was reported by Brooke Newman of Cronkite News. 
And with that, we reach the end of this installment of AZ Law. Remember to listen or download our program wherever you find your podcast. Don't forget to subscribe as well. And since our primary purpose is to support the important services provided by Sun Sounds of Arizona, don't forget to go to their website and donate. Sunsounds.org is their website. We have several plans to grow and improve this program in the coming months, but hey, your comments and suggestions to make this program better are welcomed because of that. So you can email me at paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail.com and you spell wyke, W-E-I-C-H. That's paul.wyke.azlaw at gmail. So with that, we are at the end of our program. I'm your volunteer reader, Paul Wyke, thanking you for listening to AZ Law. <laughs>